This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back with you. Uh, You know, this is that time of year where we have football games. We don't know if we're having a live show or not. Today's show is live, so we will be taking questions. I'll give you the phone numbers now, and I'll give you some more later on, because I know you're going to want to call into this show. Uh, The phone number being... 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. If you're shy, don't want to come on the air, you can shoot me a quick email at info at alessimd.com. So in the uh, weeks since I'd been here last, a lot has happened. Uh, First, I want to take time to welcome into the world Vincent Edward Malucci, my fourth grandchild and first grandson, who was born last week at nine pounds, two ounces, So he's a bruiser. Anyhow, um, and I thank everybody for their well wishes. Later on today, you're going to see UConn play Missouri, talking about football. And that's going to be on, I think they're going to the rent at around 2 o'clock, kickoff at 6.30 tonight. And the reason you're going to want to call in today is because my guest is Dr. Lauren Ganey. Dr. Ganey is an orthopedic surgeon, and she specializes in foot and ankle surgery. So, you know, often on the show, we've had as a regular guest, Dr. Michael Scanlon, who's a podiatrist and talks about foot pain from that standpoint. So we're going to look at it from a different standpoint in a lot of foot and ankle problems, fractures, some new ways of approaching these problems. So she's going to chat with us and we're going to take all of your questions. This day in medicine. October 28th is the Feast of St. Jude. Now, I'm not going to get all religious on everybody, but this is an important feast because St. Jude is the patron saint of hopeless causes. And the reason I bring that up is because of St. Jude Children's Hospital. St. Jude Children's Hospital, as many of you will know from commercials or hearing about it, is a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee that was founded by Danny Thomas. Hopefully, some of my listeners are as old as I am and can remember who Danny Thomas was, but a famous comedian in the 40s and 50s who, and and it's a great story um, because he had no money. He was at church. He was Catholic, um, and he put his last $7 in and said a prayer to St. Jude Thaddeus that if if it would just help him get his career started, he would do something um, to honor St. Jude, and sure enough— His career started to turn around. He got a gig that night that paid twice what he usually got and grew from there. With that, he and his family started the St. Jude Children's Hospital. The reason it's it's not just a cancer hospital. A lot of people say that it's, it's a cancer hospital, but it is for all children with catastrophic illnesses. No one pays a nickel in that hospital, no matter what you're from. You could be a millionaire. You're not getting a bill. You could have no money, you're not getting a bill. 
Now, it costs them $2.4 million every day to run that institution. And it's become one of the premier institutions in this country in terms of research. Uh, one of their doctors won a Nobel Prize uh, for the research, just to give you an idea what they do. And, and I really got into this story as I started going through it. The, the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia in children in 1962 had a 4% survival. That means only 4 out of 100 children survived that form of leukemia. And today, with the premier work being done at St. Jude, 94%, so 94 out of 100 children survived that. So I thought it was really worth putting that in there and this being the feast of St. Jude Thaddeus. Saving lives during a mass shooting. You know, this has come up several times. We've had some discussions on our program with ER docs, and now it's time we do something about it. It's pretty obvious that we're not able to control guns, so maybe we ought to figure out how to control bleeding, and that's what we're talking about now. So how do you control bleeding? You know, we do CPR. We're doing all this other stuff. Here it is. Buy a tourniquet. Buy a tourniquet. Go on Amazon today. Spend the 10 bucks. Buy a tourniquet. Well, one of the docs at Hartford Hospital, one of the ER docs there, put together kits. These are kits. A tourniquet, gloves, a bandage, and a hemostatic dressing. Not very expensive. I have one in my car. Okay? The last thing I want to do is come upon a crisis as a physician and not be able to do something and save a life. Stopping bleeding saves lives. So it's pretty basic stuff. can be easily taught as part of the CPR classes we all take or taught in high school. And it's really come to light after the Boston Marathon, the Vegas shootings here at Sandy Hook, that if we can control bleeding, a patient will live. So anyhow, Senator Blumenthal is pushing for legislation that requires everyone who buys a new car. When you go to buy a new car, there are going to be one of these packs in that car. Not very expensive. Actually, a car dealer may want to just do that, okay, as an incentive. Because, again, it, it can't cost them more than 15 20 bucks to do. And suddenly we're equipping people to help other people save lives. It's important because we need to start taking this situation into our own hands, sadly. Uh, I was asked on another program recently to explain something I talk about quite a bit, and that is the two-tiered medical system that we're heading for. So everybody's in favor of national health insurance, national health care. And to be honest with you now, in looking at some of the recent polls, most physicians are in favor of it. But... What people have to understand is you have to give – if nothing is free in this world, so if you're going to get your health care for free, paid for by the government, you'd better be ready to accept restrictions. And that's how it works in other countries. Just look to Canada or somewhere else. Uh, basically, you have state-run health care that's paid for by the state. You don't pay any money for it. Great. But you will wait months to get an MRI. That's why there are MRI centers in Buffalo and Detroit. So people who have money take cash, go across, and get their MRI done. Same thing in other countries. So you're going to wait a long time to see a specialist in a particular area, whereas now you pick up the phone and you show up. Listen, nothing could get more socialized than now. If you look at my waiting room, 
You don't know who has what insurance or has no insurance, actually, since we are the University of Connecticut. Okay, So you, you could sit out there in the same waiting room, be brought back by the same nurse, see the same doctor, and be prescribed the same medications and tests without any differentiation in what insurance you have. I don't even know what insurance people have. So how could you get more socialized than that? When we go to a new nationalized system, we're going to know because those folks are going to be seen at clinics, much like the VA. And I don't want to beat on the VA because I think they do a fine job. But by the same token, you're going to be going to different centers, seeing different doctors, probably a different doctor every time you walk in, and you're going to be restricted as to what you can obtain or not obtain under that plan in terms of medication, in terms of hearing aids, glasses, things such as that. So if we're ready and as a society we make that decision, that's great. Let's do it. But understand, your neighbor may have a few bucks and be able to go to somebody and see them privately and get something they want a lot sooner than you. And that's what a two-tiered system is, and that is not socialism by any means. With that, we're going to be back shortly after a quick break with Dr. Lauren Ganey. Dr. Ganey is going to talk to us a little bit about orthopedic injuries to the foot and ankle. Also, we're going to talk to her because one of her roles is that of associate director of program and associate program director for residents and students at the University of Connecticut. We want to talk a little bit about uh, training young physicians. Phone numbers here, 1-860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842, or info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Welcome back to Healthy Rounds. That's the music of Clint Black. And Clint Black is at the Mohegan Sun tonight. I will also be at the Mohegan Sun tonight. Uh, but I am, oddly enough, being inducted into the Connecticut Boxing Hall of Fame. Uh, which, as my father explained, so it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, of my work in uh, making combat sports and boxing safer, and that's why they're putting me in there. As I explained to my father, who's 91 years old, I said, geez, Dad, I'm going into the Boxing Hall of Fame, and I never had to throw a punch. In his infinite wisdom, he quickly looked at me and said, yeah, but you never had to take a punch either. And I guess he's right from that standpoint. But anyhow, I will be there, and I thank the Connecticut Boxing Hall of Fame uh, for nominating and inducting me uh, there tonight. Um, they do tremendous work. I think people don't have a real good understanding of how much uh, people like that do for the sport of boxing and how many great boxers were here in Connecticut, and I get to go into the Hall of Fame with them. With that, uh, my guest today here in the studio is Dr. Lauren Ganey. Dr. Ganey is a foot and ankle surgeon. She is an orthopedic surgeon uh, doing that at the University of Connecticut, where I have the honor of working with her. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tony. Hey, so let's talk a little bit. How do you how do you get to be an orthopedic foot and ankle surgeon? So it's a bit of a road to get here. So um, as most of everyone that goes into medicine does, we go into medical school for four years after our undergraduate education. So at that point, pretty much everyone has the same curriculum. We're all doing the same thing no matter 
whether you end up being a surgeon, whether you end up being a neurologist, whether you end up going into internal medicine. And at that point, you make the decision as far as which direction you want to go. And I learned pretty early that I wanted to go towards orthopedic surgery. So at that point, after the four years of medical school, I I, uh, stayed at the University of Connecticut and went into five years of residency training. And five years is pretty standard for most of the surgical specialties that we have. So at that point, I was an orthopedic surgeon, and then we get into the nitty-gritty of you know where you go from there, and then we add one more year to that uh, for fellowship training, and that's where I've subspecialized into foot and ankle surgery. So while I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training and by board certification, I've subspecialized myself uh, into foot and ankle surgery. Did you do the fellowship here at UConn? No, actually, I went down to Baltimore for the year to Mercy Medical Center and spent the year down there. Okay. Uh, so w- one of the things that I think is confusing for a lot of people is the difference between an orthopedic foot and ankle surgeon and a podiatrist. Can you talk a little bit about the differences either in training or approach to the patient? Sure. So that's a very common question that I get. Um, And in some sense, as far as who you go to, it doesn't always matter. But uh, training is certainly different. You know, as an orthopedic surgeon, um, I've done medical school, so I'm an MD, whereas uh, a podiatrist is a DPM. So they have a doctorate in uh, just podiatric medicine. So they go through um, a medical school, a podiatry school, and then they do a residency afterwards as well. But that's you know s- specific to um, podiatry and to uh, foot and sometimes ankle surgery. I went through the whole track, so I have an orthopedic training. Um, I did the four years of medical school in addition to the five years of of my residency. You know, as far as who to see, some of that is dictated by the state. In the state of Connecticut, all podiatrists can do surgery on the forefoot, meaning bunions, hammer toes, anything with the toes they can do. Um, It's fairly strict as far as who can also do ankle surgery, and and there's um, a lot of requirements, you know, what you've done in training, how many surgeries you've done under supervision um, in order to get that advanced training. So for things like bunions, hammer toes, certainly a podiatrist or an orthopedic surgeon can do that, Um, you know, and something a little bit more complex and, you know, we call hind foot, either the ankle or the heel, um, they're only a select few in the state that can do those surgeries. And a podiatrist can treat all those non-operatively, but surgically it's only going to be the orthopedic surgeons that can do that. Lauren, what what are the most common things that come? Now, you're at a tertiary care facility, so a lot of the patients you see, I would assume, are referred by other orthopedists who have not done fellowship training because general orthopedists treat foot and ankle problems all the time. But obviously there are other problems that come to you. So what are the most common problems that you deal with in the area of foot and ankle surgery? Sure. So, I mean, I, I like to divide it up into all, because we see so many different things. But I would say, you know, we see trauma. And in that way, I see a lot of ankle fractures, but I also see ankle sprains. So I see fractures and sprains in the world of trauma. Um, in the world of the forefoot, you know, bunions and hammer toes are probably the most common common problem that I see. And then we have the arthritis world. So you can get arthritis anywhere in the foot. Arthritis of the great toe is a very common thing um, that I don't know that the public necessarily knows about because patients seem surprised when I tell them they have arthritis of the great toe. Arthritis of the ankle, arthritis of the foot is also very common. And then there's also the deformity, we call it. So the flat foot or people that have a really high arch and can have problems associated with that. 
Um, so those are typically surgical interventions then, you're saying, like people with high arches. Um, uh, let's back up a little bit because you helped me write a, an interesting article a few weeks ago in the Norwich Bulletin about ankle injuries and ankle sprains. Is there such a thing, and I hear this all the time, I have weak ankles. Is there such a thing as weak ankles? How do you define weak ankles? So, I mean, I, there's different ways to talk about that. So they can be weak because your ligaments are weak and, the, you know, the ligaments are, are what connect the bone to the bone. So some people are just generally ligamentously loose. And in those people, you know, they have their shoulders that may or may not dislocate. All their joints just tend to be loose. You know, and, and some people refer to that as weak ankles. Other people, I think, just have not been rehabbed appropriately from previous ankle sprains, and the muscles are actually weaker. And so, you know, I think that the muscle weakness, and in all of these, a good amount of physical therapy and the appropriate re rehab can actually protect these ankles from becoming a problem in the future. So when someone has weak ankles, it... it some people say, well, I can't play that sport or or whatever. Are they, they're just more susceptible to sprain? I would say that, you know, and, and my job is to make sure that if people want to play that sport, they're able to do that. And my goal is if I can to avoid surgery, but I also don't want anyone to avoid doing things that make them happy and what they want to do. So there are some patients that are great day to day. They can walk on the sidewalk. They can walk through the woods on uneven ground, but you get them on a basketball court and they have trouble. And so for those people, if I can brace them or tape them and put them into some high top shoes and keep them safe on the basketball court, then I don't need to go back in and do anything surgically. So some of it depends on what tends to make their ankles roll or in what setting they feel unstable. I think you answered my next question, but you know, we're typically you treat a lot of athletes. We spend a lot of time with athletes. We're taping ankles all the time um, and, and not bracing them or whatever. First of all, does taping ankles really help? It can. Um, you know, the it's the technique in which you tape that can help. So some of it's just feedback. If your body, and I'm sure everyone that's listening has put an ACE wrap somewhere in their body at some point in your life, and a lot of the benefit um, and the success of that is just that your body realizes that there's something around that portion of their body and they have that feedback that this ankle is weak and so their their body has the ability to accommodate to that. I never really thought of that. Um, is it the same with braces? Have we have we come I and mean, we use braces for everything, but I rarely see people wearing ankle braces that are effective. Are, are ankle braces effective? So there are ankle braces that are effective. They have those, you know, sleeve braces. And, and I think sometimes that's just more um, people feel more comfortable having something on. We do have braces that the way the straps are made, it actually corrects um, the foot and brings it straighter. And so the, the strap kind of goes from the inside of your ankle to the out. So it almost prevents it from rolling in. This is great. I want to get back to this because I think it's something that a lot of people you know, it affects a lot of people overall. So we're going to be back with my guest today, Dr. Lauren Gainey. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to have you call. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. If you have any questions about arthritis of the foot and ankle, because that's what we're going to be talking a little bit about next, um, please call in. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're chatting today with Dr. Lauren Ganey. Dr. Ganey is an orthopedic surgeon, 
who treats foot and ankle problems. Lauren, before the break, we were talking about ankles. So uh, if someone's having ankle pain, is it most likely a sprain more than anything or how – I mean people are listening. You know, people always go buy those ace bandage socks or something like that and they have – they're kind of variably effective. Um, at what point do they need to get medical attention when they're looking at this ankle and, and it's still aching? So, you know, we talk about uh, ankle sprains and, and a lot of people I see will come in to see me because it's been a few days and it still hurts and, you know, a lot of people feel that most ankle sprains in a couple of days, it should be feeling better. You know, the bad ones really take up to 12 weeks to get better. And so as long as it's progressing and improving and improving, then you don't necessarily need to take the time out of your schedule to come see a practitioner. But if you feel like you're plateauing and it was getting better and now you're sitting around and it's been a couple of weeks and it's the same as it was a few weeks ago, then that's certainly um, a time that that you should come in to be seen or if it's been past those 12 weeks and it's still swollen and still not quite right then that's usually either again you need some some pretty formal physical therapy to get you through it or there could be something else going on other than you know just your typical ankle sprain let's move kind of forward towards the forefoot and arthritis of the ankles i mean is it becoming more common that we diagnose the, uh, arthritis in the foot and ankle more than anything? Well, ankle arthritis is very different than your typical knee and hip arthritis. And most people know somebody or personally have had a knee or a hip replacement. Hips and knees are more wear and tear. They come in the later stages of life. Ankles are pretty res resilient in the sense that if you've never had a problem with your ankle, it's pretty uncommon to get ankle arthritis. Ankle arthritis comes much more commonly, we call post-traumatically. If you've had an ankle fracture, if you've had a bad injury to the ankle, then that's when ankle arthritis usually comes. So unfortunately, I see ankle arthritis much more commonly in the 30 and 40-year-olds than I'm seeing it in the 50, 60, 70-year-olds. Um, and so this is a problem of younger people, and it tends to be more traumatic-related, uh, more so than you know, I didn't necessarily remember an injury, but it's just kind of come with time. Well, I was going to ask you that because, you know, we're seeing young people become much more active. And a lot of these sports are quasi-extreme in, in many respects. Uh, so is is that what we're seeing? In, I mean, you know, people are jumping more, okay? Let's put it that way. People are doing more jumping and climbing and things like that. Is that where you're starting to see these injuries? It's not necessarily. So the arthritis I see is somebody that had a bad fracture car accident or, you know, they fell off a ladder when they were younger. So these are pretty big traumas that probably had to have surgery at the time that they were initially happened. It's not usually the repetitive trauma that you see in athletes. That being said, a lot of the older people I see it in where their ankles are actually arthritic and tilted, those are, you know, these guys that used to play ball when they were younger and they'd sprain their ankle and they'd get right back out there. And so, you know, the repetitive inversion ankle sprains, your typical sprains, can result in arthritis, which is why we're trying to be a little bit more aggressive on the front end as far as, you know, in athletes that have chronic problems, trying to manage them early on, whether it's with bracing, whether it's with rehab or whether it's surgical, to try to in some ways prevent that from happening in the future. A lot of times our practices overlap when we're dealing with nerve injuries um, and specifically elderly folks with complicating features, diabetes, for, for example. 
What are the more common things you see and, and problems that come up in people who have diabetes and chronic medical conditions that have now affected the foot and ankle? So, you know, diabetes has its own um, world of, of foot and ankle problems. So some of it is things like ulcers um, or wounds on the feet because they don't have that sensation. And, you know, where any one of us would step on something on the ground and we would know immediately that we stepped on something. And a diabetic that can't feel, if they if they have a, a cut in their foot, then not only can they not feel it, but they're also at a disadvantage because of the diabetes or at higher risk of infection anyway. So you add those two together, an infection of the of the feet are a particularly a problem with the diabetics. So that that would I say I would say would be number one. And and fortunately uh, insurances will cover for all diabetics to get routine podiatry care and uh, twice a year get their feet checked and get specific special um, inserts for their shoes and special shoes to protect them from these things that can be really devastating if they happen. How about other nerve injuries to the ankle? I see a fair number of people in referrals for people with so-called tarsal tunnel syndrome. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, you know, people are sent all the time for it. Are you one of the non-believers, believers, or uh, let's talk about it? So tarsal tunnel is very different from carpal tunnel syndrome, which happens in the hand. And in the hand, there's a very, very thick ligament that goes over the carpal tunnel and goes over the median nerve there that can cause problems. And, and the surgery is very, very um, successful. In the foot, the tarsal tunnel, so that's the major nerve that goes down to the foot that gives you sensation to the bottom of the foot. And the tibial nerve that goes there, the, the sheath that covers it um, is very thin. And so the people that actually do well with surgery and that I think that that, that that issue truly exists are those that have other things that could be putting pressure on the nerve. So things like cysts. Some people have some varicose veins there that can be putting some pressure on the nerve. So other than, you know, just to have it without something else on MRI that could be putting pressure on it, those people actually do pretty poorly with surgical release because, again, that ligament isn't so thick. So if all you do is release a very wispy ligament, you're not necessarily going to give someone a, a good outcome from that. Sometimes it's just if someone has a really flat foot, the position of their foot could actually be stretching the nerve out. So I found some people just giving them orthotics resolves the nerve problem. Yeah, what's interesting from my standpoint, I have a lot of respect for the doctors, obviously, who send me the patient before the surgery, uh, because as a neurologist, we could quantify if there's nerve damage and how bad it is. What frustrates me is people who come in with a scar over the tarsal tunnel and have never had electrical tests and saying, I, I still have foot pain. So again, it's interesting. I think what you're saying is it's there, but it's not quite as common as people may think because they, they associate, well, I had carpal tunnel, I must have tarsal tunnel and probably not the same. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with that. So what we know is that the people that do well from a surgical release are those people that have a positive nerve t test and people that have something on their studies, on their MRIs to show that there's something I can actually remove surgically to take the pressure off. You know, right next to the nerve is a tendon uh, called the posterior tibial tendon, and that tendon is much, much more commonly the problem. And even people that I've seen come to me that have already had their tarsal tunnel released and they're still having pain, I think the problem is is that the issue is the tendon that lives right next door and not the nerve at all. Let me ask you this. I ask this to a lot of surgeons, and I'll ask you as well. What 
What's the surgery you like to do the most? I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of the patient, what do you find the most rewarding surgery for you in terms of foot and ankle? So you know, for me, the the two surgeries that are most successful for me, and and I think that's why I enjoy doing them the most, is first of all for what we talked about before for the for the ankle sprains. For the, so for people that have chronic ankle instability, in that. You know, we've done all these things. We've done the rehab. We've done the taping and the bracing, and they're still having trouble. Then, in those people, we can go and we can actually tighten up the ligaments. And I've actually been working, um, and I'm now doing those primarily arthroscopically as well. And so that's a really satisfying procedure because people do well, um, and it's a fun surgery for me to do as well. The other. Um, surgeries that people do very well with are my fusions. And we do fusions in the foot and ankle for people that have arthritis. Um, And while we do have ankle replacements, again, a lot of these ankle arthritis people I see are much younger and they're not candidates for that. But people are living in chronic pain from arthritis. And fortunately, most joints of the foot don't move a whole lot. So when you fuse them, you don't lose much, but people are much happier. So even uh, the arthritis of the big toe is probably one of my most successful surgeries when I fuse that. So it's interesting just to hear from that. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of funny because from my standpoint, as a neurologist examining patients, I make them take off their shoes and socks and they're like, why? Okay. But it, it people don't understand that it's part of the body and you really have to examine that. Um, that's an interesting choice because you've touched on two topics for our next session. And that's going to be, I wanted to talk a little bit about the future of orthopedic surgery in the foot and ankle. And I wrote down two things, which were replacements and arthroscopic surgery. So we're going to be back with my guest today, Dr. Lauren Ganey, who is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in foot and ankle disorders. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. We're entering the last segment of our show here at Healthy Rounds, and I'm with Dr. Lauren Ganey. Dr. Ganey is an orthopedic surgeon at the University of Connecticut at UConn Orthopedics, uh, and she cares for everybody, athletes and the elderly. If you'd like to make an appointment to see Dr. Ganey, the phone number is 860-679-6600. Lauren, uh, before the break, we talked a little bit about, uh, I want to talk about the future of foot and ankle surgery. So one of the things that always comes up to me that's always impressive are replacements. Um, and as you said, it's not something commonly done. Uh, why is that? Is it just no need? No, I mean, there's a, there's a great need for it. And, and the benefit, so traditionally, people were getting their ankles fused. And you can imagine that if you have no ankle motion, what that, what that can do for you, you end up with a limp. And while the pain is much better, it can cause other issues. And so ankle replacements have actually been around for a while. They started back in the 70s, and unfortunately, they failed pretty horribly at that point. So people abandoned it for a while. Um, we're now in the third generation of these ankle replacements, and the success rate is getting much better. If we talk about and we compare them to hips and knees, hips and knees are about 96% successful at 10 years out versus an ankle, which is about 80%. So it's nowhere near as far as technology goes where we are with the, the hip and the knee. But what we've also discovered is that we have to be very selective about who gets these. Because if you think of, you know, we always talk about if you have a, a car with tires that aren't aligned, then it's going to wear down quicker. 
And again, a lot of these patients are not just wear and tear arthritis. They've had traumas. They can have, you know, healed fractures that are crooked. And so if you have a crooked ankle, I can't put an ankle replacement in or it's or it's going to fail pretty quickly. I also know that, you know, laborers, we worry about these wearing out quickly. And um, in young people, and again, you know, the people I see in general are 30 or 40, I myself have a cutoff of 60 years old before I really feel comfortable putting this on because if I'm expecting it to fail in 10 or 15 years, you know, I, I, I don't want that to be in somebody in their 60s having a failed ankle when we don't really have a good option to revise it. So you wouldn't put it, you wouldn't do a replacement in someone younger than 60 years old. That That's my personal feeling on it. Some people are more aggressive and do it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more, more conservative in putting these in because I want to make sure that they last and that they do a good job. Uh, are the materials pretty much the same as we see for knee and hip? Yeah, so so very similar. There are different um, models for it. Some, most of them go in from the front of the ankle. There is a new model coming out where um, you go in from the side of the ankle, but essentially it's all metal and plastic, the same as you see in the hip and the knee. Uh, you mentioned arthroscopic surgery. Do you do a lot of arthroscopic surgery? In I the do. Foot and ankle? I do, and this is something that's becoming more and more popular. And you know, I think one of the exciting things about foot and ankle surgery is that it's behind the other specialties. And you know, we're we're in the process of really learning new techniques. And while in the sports medicine world, almost everything's done arthroscopically, really in general, most things are done open in the ankle and in the foot. And so there's been a push, and and people are discovering new techniques to do these arthroscopically. We're still limited in some sense because a lot of the joints of the foot are very small and you can't get an arthro- a camera in there. But things of the ankle are becoming more and more commonly um, done arthroscopically now. And then, you know, there are new techniques coming out. I guess one of the things that people always ask when we look at the future of medicine, uh, we, we talk a lot about stem cells. And I know that being at the University of Connecticut, uh, you're kind of on the cutting edge. I mean, it's a research institution, and, and that's really what differentiates uh, our department in orthopedics as opposed to any other hospital. Stem cells and being able to construct a new ankle. I mean, we see people use stem cells and to create a new ear, a new nose. We know that that work is being done to lay down new joints. Is that being done in the ankle as well? I don't hear a lot about doing that in the ankle. I mean, I think there's a lot of work done just for cartilage regeneration right now, and I think that that's a problem in all the joints. And And I would argue that in the ankle it's more important because our replacements can't be done for the majority of our patients. And so, you know, I, I think that that's something that's coming um, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but right now we, we unfortunately don't have a whole lot with stem cells. I mean, we, we do take um, for certain for certain injuries that I know have a higher risk of the bone not healing, I'll take some uh, bone marrow from the hip or I'll take you know graft from other places and try to spin that down and use that to supplement what I'm doing. But as of now, you know, there's nothing um, right now as far as regenerating the ankle. So when you say take some marrow, is it almost like PRP, platelet-rich plasma? Yeah, very similar, except it's it's coming from the bone marrow where you, where we aspirate some of it from the hip, and then we can put it into a machine and spin it down to the the healing factors and the and the stem cells there. I mean, PRP is still another controversial topic. Um, do you find it works? I don't, in general, use it. Okay. Um, my feeling and the studies that have been done in the foot and ankle 
we feel that probably just the use of the needle to to cause bleeding itself, um, you know, things like the Achilles or the plantar fascia, um, probably does just as much as PRP. It's something that's out of pocket for patients. So, you know, if patients have tried everything and they really don't want to have surgery, it's certainly something we discuss. Um, but to me, I think the the outcomes are pretty equivocal. Ten years from now, where are we going to be with foot and ankle surgery? What What's going to be the hot topic um, in, in foot and ankle surgery? I, I think that ankle replacements are going to be getting better and better, and I think we're going to be doing a lot fewer fusions and, and a lot more replacements. Um, specifically in the ankle. And I think, you know, the two things we talked about, arthroscopic um, treatment too. There are some people that are, are fusing other joints in the foot and the ankle um, with arthroscopic techniques. And and while, you know, the surgery itself is not a whole lot different, the recovery can be easier because you're doing a lot less soft tissue work. Do you think we'll be able to start doing replacements in people much younger? So in other words, when you say replacements will, ankle replacements will evolve, um, are you saying that they'll get they'll last long? That's my hope, you know. And and we always talk. Ironically, we won't know for fifteen or twenty years if these are going to last fifteen or twenty years. So we can put them in the lab and we can try to simulate it, but we won't know. So as we're putting newer and newer um, designs in that we think are going to last longer, I think we'll know in the next ten years how they're lasting and whether it's something that we'll be able to start being a little bit more aggressive putting in. Lauren, thank you so much for spending time with us today, and thank you for all you do for our patients and uh, especially at uh, UConn Health and the research being done. Uh, I guess uh, we have a couple of minutes. I I wanted to ask you a little bit about young physicians. You do a lot of training in young physicians. If you were to sum up, what, what makes young people go into medicine today? You mean we? So I interview a lot of these applicants that are medical students looking to go into residency and orthopedics, and you know I, I think it's the same thing that always has. You know, it's the idea of trying to help people and and the um, satisfaction you get when you see somebody um, that's done well. And I think that's one of the great things about orthopedic surgeries that you know we're not curing cancer, but we're getting people comfortable. And I get you know grandparents playing with their grandkids again, and it's it's a very satisfying job that we have. And, and I think that that's what people see. And there's a lot of headaches going on with insurance and, and, you know, everything else that you hear about. But, you know, I think that we all feel like we're doing good things for, for people. Well, we'd be seeing more women in orthopedic surgery. Yes. yes. yes it's yes, been yes. a traditionally male specialty. Um, so are there more women coming through the system? I mean, I've seen more fellows coming through, but... Yeah, so th- there's definitely more women. Right now, if you look at people in practice, there's about 7% women versus residents, which are 14%. So we're already doubling that. And even last weekend, um, Dr. Kathy Coiner um, at UConn uh, put together something called the Perry Initiative. And this is a, a national initiative that, that's really trying to expose high schoolers um, to the male-dominated fields, including orthopedics and engineering. And I helped her out a bit with that, but I mean, she was really the workhorse behind it. But things like that have really been encouraging women to get into it um, because it's, it's, it's a male-dominated field, but certainly it's not something that only men can do. It's great. Lauren, thanks again for your time and uh, thank you for spending time with us today. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mikey Okles, on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, Next week, uh, I will not be here. I will be at the Professional Bull Riders World Finals, where the most common injury in bull riding is concussion. So I will be in Las Vegas with them, so you will have a taped program. 
Um, and uh, I'm sure that we're going to put something good together for you. Mike always works on that. Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by going to registerme.com. or Actually, it's registerme.org, so you can become an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.